Uh, good morning, Carl. Welcome back to A Life in Biography. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Yes, last time we talked about a book that had not yet been published, your biography of Jack Ruby. So now it's been published. What's that feel like? It's one of those, um, you know, exhilarating, and yet it's anticlimactic at the same time. You wait, you know, you wait so long for something to come into existence, and then kind of there it is, and uh, you see it in stores, and, and it no longer online, you know, it doesn't say pre-order available. It says you can actually buy it, and uh, it becomes this real thing, like an actual book that an actual author wrote. Yes, I know. I, I don't know how you feel about it once the book is in your hands. In my case, I just sort of, like someone in a bookstore, kind of just look through it. You know, read a few passages here and there. I don't, I don't reread the whole thing. Yeah, and then I often find uh, either a good part or a, or a part that I don't like, and I, and, and I just say, I guess my name is on it. I, I know. I remember writing this. How the, how the hell did I write that? That's, that guy is pretty good, or that guy ought to, you know, ought to go back to for some remedial classes. I have to confess, because there's always been that distance between the writing of the book and the book production. When I look at my stuff, I'm pretty impressed. <laughs> you know, I usually, me too, you know. Uh, and then there's always... But there are there are always typos. Yeah, yeah. I punch a bunch. What's what's useful for discovering typos after it's too late is uh, is doing your own audio book, which I've done. There's nothing like doing your audio book to see, you know, not only the mistakes you made or the words that because they were spelled right, nobody realized the wrong word, and um, you know, it also uh, yeah, that 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 brings it home. Also, when you do your own audio book. You uh, discover how many words you use every day that you don't really know how to pronounce. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, I've not done an audio book. Uh, I've, many of my books are in audio, but other people have done them. Uh, with three of my biographies, I did revise them when I got the rights back and I self-published them. Right. Uh, and I had your experience. Oh, yeah. why did I use that, why did I use that word? Yeah. You should do an audiobook, Carl. You have a great voice, obviously. You know. Yeah, the problem is I, I don't live close to any place uh -huh. where I could record the book. And I don't want to spend the money, you know, creating a home studio. Yeah, that, that makes so, sense. You know, that if I were still living in New York City, right. but I, I, I live in what one New Yorker described York a New Yorker writer described as the road to nowhere. <laughs> well, there's something to be said for that. <laughs> and I'm very happy here, but it does mean I can't get into the studio. Uh, right. Well, so, I, I bet I bet there's somebody within 15 minute drive of you who who actually makes audio books, and uh, you don't. You don't yeah, know. I should I should investigate. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, a lot know. of a lot of people do that out of their homes. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and yeah, a lot of the people who've done my audio books, they haven't been local, but but I know they've had home studios. Well, if you ever um, need a New York accent, I'm available. <laughs> okay, I'll let I'll let I'll let them know. Seriously, I would like to do other people's books, but doing audiobooks, I, I, you know, it has taught me that I, I thought I didn't have much of a New York accent, but apparently I've been fooling myself. Yeah, 
Well, whoever's listening to this podcast is wondering at this point, when are they going to talk about biography? I guess we ought to do that. (laughs) (laughs) So what have been the responses to your book? Have you been surprised? Uh, Well, I will will tell you the biggest surprise I had uh, was just um, I was in Dallas speaking at the uh, for an event sponsored by the Dallas Jewish Historical Society and the Sixth Floor Museum, which is the uh, old book depository. And um, there's a anecdote in my book um, that was told by um, um, Gabe Kaplan, the star of Welcome Back, Cotter. And, oh, uh, sure, yeah. Uh, well, Kaplan, early in his career, um, had a very uh, bizarre and amusing run-in with Jack Ruby, and so it's in the book, you know, uh, of course, and, you know, and he, and he spoke about it on Gilbert Gottfried, on the late Gilbert Gottfried's podcast. So I kind of summarized that anecdote, giving everybody appropriate credit. Uh, and um, so at my talk the other night, I always do a PowerPoint presentation. I had a picture of Kaplan, uh, you know, in part of the PowerPoint as, as, uh, as he was in Welcome Back, Cotter. And I and I uh, then summarize uh, the anecdote. And who should be in the audience in Dallas, Texas, of all places, but Gabe Kaplan, who, of course, oh, wow. who looks nothing like he did in the 70s. So yeah. I didn't, you know, I didn't recognize him. And then he came up to get a book signed afterwards. And I said, uh, who should I make it out to? He said, just make it out to Gabe. <laughs> <laughs> I went, oh, my God, you're that Gabe. <laughs> and I think I think it was as a surreal experience for him because I don't think he expected, I mean, he, you know, he came to the talk because he actually flew in from LA to come to the talk, which was very flattering because of his experience with Jack Ruby, but he certainly did not know he would be, he would be part of the book or the talk. And I, you know, if I, if the, if the event was in New York or LA, then you kind of figure, well, maybe there'll be some, you know, famous type people showing up. But in Dallas, you don't really expect, um, you know, uh, Hollywood celebrities to just suddenly walk in. So that that was certainly, um, uh, and, he, and he seemed to enjoy it, you know. Uh, yeah. And, and, he bought, you, and he bought a book. <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, since, since you mentioned him, maybe you should say what the connection was with Ruby. Well, early in his career, you know, he, um, when he was like 19 years old, um, he was an aspiring new comedian and in, in an era when there were no comedy clubs, this was you know, 1963. Um, and the only place a comedian could really get experience and practice was at strip clubs. You know, it was one of the few venues that were, that sure. were comedians. So he, he had really, I mean, uh, you know, I hope I don't get this part of his story wrong. You know, I, I think I got the other part, right. I think he told me that he had, uh, started made just several months before, and uh, he'd heard that there was uh, that Dallas that there was some work in Dallas, and so he uh, drove there like uh, in a very short time um, with a couple of strippers from a club he'd been working at in Buffalo, and um, and he gets to Dallas. And one of the people who auditions for was Jack Ruby, and you know Ruby ran this. Um, this uh, strip club, kind of more like what we would think of as uh, the last gasp of burlesque, more than like a modern <clears throat> strip club. Um, and he goes to audition, uh, Gabe Kaplan goes to audition for Jack Ruby, and he uses a mild 
a very mild um, uh, obscenity. May I, may I use it on your show? Is it? Uh, sure, I'm nice. Go ahead. Uses the word tits, which even even then was pretty mild, you know. Oh yeah. And suddenly Ruby hits the ceiling, and he goes, "What do you think? I'm running a toilet here? Look at what you want to have the cops, <laughs> cops lock the place up." And and uh, and 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 he just went ballistic as he was known to do, and and Kaplan said to him, you know, I've been every club I've been to as a you know as a customer or as a performer, people use the you know that and much uh, much worse uh, for oh, yeah. words, and somehow Ruby, you know, uh, then then Ruby calmed down, and they made uh, the and the joke involved um, it was a Dracula joke. It was it was the joke was that Dracula would. Uh, find a woman's neck more appealing uh, than her than her breast you know and that was uh, <laughs> and and um and so l later on uh, i think they ended up at a party or a poker game uh, together and uh ruby gave him a dracula mask to use next time he did the joke and uh, and, and claimed he was gonna you know call him back and uh, would eventually uh, hire him but uh he certainly didn't do that in the in the short time uh, between uh, between that audition and the uh, murder of uh, Kennedy and uh, yeah. Oswald, so so there was so he never did work at actually work at Jack Ruby's club, but he did audition for him. So one of the things you've established here, and of course you establish in your biography too, is that Jack Ruby could be quite volatile. In fact, he would uh, on some occasions uh, people throw people who offended him down the steps. He didn't do that with Gabe Kaplan. No, he did not, and I think. Uh, but he did seem to do that with regularity. Um, and then he would, you know, sometimes, uh, depending on, on the perceived offense, he would just be out on the pavement, uh, literally beating somebody's head into the sidewalk. And then he'd suddenly stop and go, oh, what am I doing? What the hell? Yeah. How, how, did, how, how did we get here? And then he would, you know, he would he would offer the uh, his victim, uh, he would like stuff $100 in cash and then, in his uh, shirt, and then uh, give him a pizza because he, he he made pizza at the club. And, you know, so yeah. Uh, yeah, he was prone. He he served as his own bouncer. He served as his own MC, um, and he was yeah very volatile. And uh, his moods could turn on a dime. Those those employees, both dancers and uh, and 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 the waitresses and and bartenders who could tolerate him. He regularly hired and fired. They regularly quit and came back. It was this, it was kind of this bizarre, dysfunctional family. Yeah, yeah. And a man who loved dachshunds. Right. He loved dachshunds. <laughs> Maybe too much, you know. That's, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, those, he loved his dachshunds. Um, he, you know, he basically allowed them free reign in his apartment and his car. His car was a wreck. The dachshunds chewed out all the upholstery and would uh, crap at will. And yet, and yet the the car was sort of his mobile his mobile office, and even his his mobile home almost. He it's where he did did most business, and and um, I guess there were no cell phones, so he did have to at least go indoors at some point. But yeah, he did seem it was an Oldsmobile, you know, which uh, yeah, you know, I guess uh, they never asked Jack Ruby to endorse the brand, and and yet they still went out of business. Uh, he. Um, yeah, that the doc, and then he gave a pair of dachshunds to um, a woman who was actually good friends of his, uh, but would never dance in his club. I think she thought his club was too uh, too low class to dance in. 
uh, a woman who was professionally known as Candy Bar with two R's. And um, he gave when when she had gotten in trouble, uh, she was arrested for a marijuana possession, and um, she also um, was had been dating a gangster Mickey Cohen at a time. But at a point in her life when she had she'd broken up with Cohen, I think it was possible he was he had put a hit out on her, although I think they made up. But she was she was living in her hometown in uh, in Edna, Texas, and Ruby uh, drove to see her with two dachshunds. Uh, so she could uh, start a, a dog breeding business. Um, so he he had this strange way of looking out for people. Yeah, the business did not work work out though. I love there's a quote from Candy Bar that I have in the book, where uh, she says about the uh, dogs that uh, they just didn't like each other that way. <laughs> so uh, so the business never took off. So um, you may not have thought of this way of it this way but in a sense these dachshunds are a key i think to the kind of biography you've written well okay i'm curious (laughs) i'd love to hear your take on that (laughs) what i mean by that is you deal with the whole person i think someone interested in jack ruby might have focused on the conspiracy theories might have either supported or or uh, debunked them, or simply made it sort of a you know a mystery story, whether it's solved or not solved. And it seems to me what you're you're doing uh, with the dachshunds, uh, and it's just one example. And someone who who doesn't understand, I think, what biography is, might say, "Well, I don't care about all those dachshunds. Why does he put that in the book?" But they they are telling. In other words, they're telling us something about Jack Ruby, about this individual who did kill Lee Har- Ari Oswald. We, we all saw that on TV, those of us who were alive then, I was. Um, but there are these other facets to the man that, as a biographer, you need to know. Well, I mean, it's the dachshunds, I, I, I think your dachshund theory is, is right on target, you know, it. Because the, and yet, oddly, the dachshunds do fit into various arguments for and against conspiracies. Because when uh, when he um, killed Oswald about uh, fifteen or twenty minutes earlier, he uh, done he'd been in downtown to do to send uh, to wire some uh, money that he owed to one of his dancers, and he brought. Uh, his favorite dachshund with him, and he left her in the car uh, when he went to, you know, when when he went over towards the uh, courthouse to um, uh, do what he, you know, whether intentionally or unintentionally, he went to the courthouse to see what, what was going on there. Some people think he was on a mission, but it, yes, a guy who loved his dogs as much as that, that's a big argument against the conspiracy, because why would he have brought a dog um and uh, and knew that uh, yeah. whatever he did, the dog would be abandoned in the car. You know, so it's such a yeah, it's such a telling human you know detail uh, about someone that I don't think you could have left out of the biography, given the kind of biography you wrote. Well, th- well, look, I I felt like you know anybody who has the presumptuousness to write a book in the first place, and then to write a book about the Kennedy assassination. However modest we may make ourselves out to be, there is some level on which we go. I'm going to solve this, you know. 
all these smart people who've been investigating this for 60 years and, and haven't found anything definitive that uh, they, they, they're too close to it. I'm going to come in and I'm going to solve it. And, but I, after you go down a few rabbit holes of conspiracies and, and you just go, well, that would require a thousand unlikely coincidences and cooperation between people who hate each other. And so, so I quickly realized I'm not going to be the guy to solve the case. And yet I, and, and so what I, what I set out as my mission was, as you, as you, uh, as you said, to shine light on who this guy was, what his life was both before and after uh, he killed Oswald and just get insight in, into him and his life and times and just try to paint uh, an interesting picture. And I say his life after because although he made it impossible for anyone to um, in depth um, hear or, or, or certainly not put on trial Oswald, Ruby himself lived another three years and you couldn't shut him up. He would talk to anybody and everybody, uh, notably except, well, he was not put on on, on the uh, witness stand by his lawyers during his trial. I think they felt he would end up incriminating himself. But during recesses in the trial, where he would, they would, he would basically have impromptu press conferences where anybody who wanted to do him harm could have easily gotten to him and yet never did. Um, but certainly you couldn't shut the guy up. And what he's, he, I, I call it um, kind of gangster Shakespearean. You know, he spoke yeah. these very, you know, um, impressive use of language, although it's clear he didn't understand a lot of the words. You know, I, again, I don't want to trivialize him, but almost Yogi Berra might be the closest analogy. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, so he would, you know, but more but more like a gangster Yogi Berra. So he would he would just um, say these portentous and ominous and 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 meaningful and dramatic sounding things. But then when you dissect them, they kind of had no meaning. On the other hand, they've been perfect fodder for um, for conspiracy theories because there's so many there's so much ambiguity in in, in, in yeah. the things he said. Well, one of the things that, that interested me in the biography that I didn't know about Ruby um, is. Uh, when you speak about conspiracy theories, there's usually some kind of paranoia involved. They're out to get you or they're out to get Kennedy or whoever it is they're out to get. Uh, there's, there's that cabal or click or whatever it is, that circle. And Jack Ruby himself um, had, uh, to some extent, this kind of paranoia. But the conspiracy that he was worried about uh, in his sort of final days before he died was a conspiracy against the Jews. Well, Ruby had, Ruby came from, so that was one of the things that fascinated me about Ruby is um, that really he came from the same, essentially the same background as my parents and grandparents, first uh, born American uh, Jewish uh, children of Eastern European immigrants. And it was, um, you know, just how kind of similar he was to people I knew, although from Chicago, and I realized that that's a whole different subculture. But he, he grew up in the Maxwell Street ghetto, which is kind of the Lower East Side of Chicago, the same neighborhood that produced uh, Arthur Goldberg, the uh, Supreme Court Justice, um, Barney Ross, the boxer, who was Ruby's best friend from childhood, and uh, Benny Goodman. So, um, 
you know, Ruby, he came from a classic sort of background, also produced a bunch of gangsters, and, and Ruby and uh, Ross both uh, did errands for Al Capone uh, when they were uh, kids or teenagers, and uh, and Ruby trained as a boxer, as did as did Barney Ross from back when, when um, boxing was a very Jewish sport, to the extent there were non-Jewish boxers who claimed they were Jewish just so they, were, <laughs> just so they could get ahead in, in boxing, you know. Um, so Ruby... You know, one, one, it's funny. People will often say that, uh, you know, he, he, you know, blundered or kind of uh, stumbled his way towards, uh, towards Oswald and shot him. I, I look at it as him dancing up to, up to Oswald like a boxer. You know, he was very interesting. Uh, yeah. And in a way, that kind of, um, um, there was a period when I thought, you know, that, that he was almost like Ralph Cramden on the honeymooners. Like he was just a slightly more sinister Jackie Gleason. Yeah. You know, to the moon, Lee Harvey. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, he was quite a bit more, more sinister, but there is that, that sort of resemblance. Well, the other thing um, about Ruby is, um, I mean, this is all very serious given what happened. On the other hand, you do have to laugh sometimes. Well, it, it, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Oh, um, it be, you know, if you look at how popular culture has handled Ruby over the decades, you know, the, the Kennedy assassination and its repercussions are so big. And that's how I felt about it, you know. And yeah. when, as a kid and a, and a young adult, when I started hearing all these various theories and ideas, it just and how they contradicted each other, um, and were and were so unlikely, and yet not in, not you can't a hundred percent rule out that there wasn't some plan, but it just yeah. seems I've never, you know, I you know I've not found anyone yet that convinces me that oh yeah this is. Uh, what happened? So I think for for some of uh, of my generation and and you know your generation, I think the the result in the pop culture has well, it's been it's been a rash of stories that involve conspiracy. You know, I mean that's yeah, really became yeah. a very popular. It always was, and there it always was yeah. popular. And therefore, Ruby must be a sinister figure, uh, and and has to be. And obviously, this insight isn't original to me. It's been said, you know, that with events such mo so momentous, it can't be just Lee Harvey, her, Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby. There's got to be more than that. It reminds me of uh, uh, when I was giving a talk about my biography of Marilyn Monroe, and a woman asked me, you know, well, you know, what do you think about the Kennedys? And, and did they have her bumped off and so on? And I said, well, you know, there are all these different theories. And it, I felt this sort of the same way you feel about the assassination conspiracies, you know, well, they don't, you know, ultimately you would need so many people involved. It doesn't make sense. So I sort of gave that version of that answer to her and she looked at me and she said, Oh, you're so naive. Right. Well, that's, you know, as I, I kind of only half jokingly in the book, I even kind of address you know, as I'm talking, you know, in the in the in the in the forward to the book, where I, where I speak in, uh, you know, in more of a first person, um, uh, I, I say, you know, look, maybe you, maybe somebody reading this did it, and they're laughing at my naivete. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. But, uh, if, if they did, they certainly covered their tracks. But that's, you know, that, like I said, I realized I wasn't uh, going to solve it. And I think Ruby was, sin- you know, Ruby had a bumbling and humorous side, but he was sinister. There were things yeah. he did that, you know, were both violent. And uh, look, I mean, and he's easy, he's easy to make fun of because he's kind of like a you know a goofy good looking uh, almost mobster stereotype, but whatever else he did or didn't do, and 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 I have in the book uh, stories of extremes of both his madness and 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 helplessness and of his taking you know especially in his, when he when he did testify to the Warren Commission, he was in a room full of armed and accomplished and and uh, not shy people and yet he took control of the room yeah amazing that's an amazing part of your book yeah Yeah. i mean i was amazed at 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 how people you know like arlen specter and gerald ford not not wallflowers and ford physically imposing and you know and suddenly he's taking charge of the room and and dictating who can and can't be in the room and who who he will and won't uh, allow to speak to him you know and and we have to remember however he got there you know, he walked up and shot the guy who should have been the most heavily guarded person in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, you know, it's like, you know, a surprising knockout. Yeah, you know, right, just, exactly. Uh, incredible. Um, I think we should say something about, and I think with events like this, and, and given what happens in modern biography, uh, there's there's some psychology involved, whether the biographer is writing, you know, a psychological biography or not, it's hard, hard to avoid it. Um, and Ruby's lawyer, Melvin Belli, had a whole theory about the, the pattern of Jack Ruby's behavior and what it meant and it had to do with epilepsy. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, he, um, you know, it's as 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 you might expect from someone who wrote a book called Superman on the Couch. I tend towards psychological biography. Yeah. Um, and and um, well, Belli, you know, Belli was at at that time probably the most famous lawyer in America. Uh, unfortunately for him, one of his cases had involved the same judge, Judge Brown, um, when Belli was defending uh, Candy Barr on her marijuana bust. And uh, they did not, uh, he and, and Brown did not get along, you know. Um, but Belli, Belli knew who the prosecutor was. The prosecutor was Henry Wade, who you may know better from Roby Wade. Yeah. This was, this was uh, about 10 years before that. Um, and Wade had um, never lost a um, capital uh, you know, death penalty case, or maybe he lost one out of 25, but he had a pretty solid track record and he was determined that Ruby was going to die in the electric chair. So I think when Belli saw that, uh, you know, um, and Belli being chosen was part of a whole sub hot soap opera of Ruby's family hiring and firing lawyers, um, you know, um, without the, the, too many to count eventually. Uh, so Belli had this idea for this, um, Belli was famous for his medical, uh, he had done a lot of uh, medical malpractice and, and consumer malpractice. So he knew a lot, you know, he wasn't a doctor, but he knew a lot about medicine and psychology. And I, and he thought he would try this thing called psychomotor epilepsy, which was a specific, uh, diagnosis of the kind of fugue state Ruby would go into, like we were talking about when he would be, 
beating somebody up at his club and, and suddenly stop as if he didn't realize what he was doing. So he got um, a, a smorgasbord of some of the most famous psychologists and researchers, you know, uh, up to and including a Guttmacher of the Guttmacher Institute um, to come and testify that Ruby had that those that those uh, seizures, that, that those fugue states that Ruby uh, would go into uh, were, were a symptom of something called psychomotor epilepsy. And so that when he had killed uh, Oswald, it was not premeditated. He just went into some kind of trance state. Um, this um, was a highly sophisticated and um, never tried defense. And, um, and you know, it's, it's, it's easy to say, oh, it was Dallas, so the jury wasn't smart enough. But actually, the jury was, was a very intelligent uh, a jury, and um, but they just didn't didn't buy it. You know, they, you know, a lot of people second guessing it, and then they convicted Ruby in two hours. You know, a, a lot of people second guessing it say, "Oh, Bell, I should have tried the crime of passion, which was more common, especially in Texas." Yeah, you know, somebody, you know, somebody finds their spouse cheating, and they, in the heat of the moment, uh, kills them, um, and then they uh, they get off with like a, a suspended sentence. But it was, you know, so, so you know, they, they were second guessing, oh, Bell, I should have gone the simpler route and done that. Um, but I think, I think given what he was up against with Wade, I think it, it, it was a gamble and, ult- and ultimately vindicate, you know, when the spoiler alert, but the case was, mm-hmm. the case uh, was overturned on appeal by a team of lawyers led by uh, William Kunstler. And, um, and basically, they vindicated a lot of what uh, Bell had been saying, including about how uh, it was uh, impossible for anybody uh, who had done what Ruby did to get a fair trial uh, in Dallas, because Dallas was so traumatized by what had happened. Sure. Well, I think, at least for me, reading your biography, Belli's notion, uh, given the pattern and the volatility of, of Ruby's behavior, uh, I can certainly see why he was attracted to that defense. Yeah, well, and, and Belli was a sh- was a showboater. I mean, he was a yeah. he was a celebrity lawyer. Um, he dressed flamboyantly, lived flamboyantly. He had an office in San Francisco, and anytime he won a case, he would fire a cannon off the roof of his office building. You know? So yes. he was, uh, um, you know, but but you know, he had to back it up. He was very successful and. A, a pioneer in, in the consumer injury, uh, 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 you know, of litigation. Um, yeah. But, but, uh, but he was also someone who antagonized, you know, he, 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 I think his personality did antagonize um, the, um, the prosecution and probably the, the jury, you know, and then the whole thing with the, epi- with the psychomotor epilepsy, you know, it wasn't so long ago that epilepsy was looked at as demonic uh, uh, possession. Yeah. And so because of that, representatives of an epilepsy advocacy association were picketing and handing out leaflets, you know, mm. because they thought Belli was un- unfairly uh, tarring uh, people who suffered with epilepsy. It's interesting what you're saying about, and you, you show that in the book, um, uh, in terms of a lawyer like Bell, like in a sense, getting in the way of his own evidence, um, that flamboyance, uh, as you're suggesting, probably did him no good, especially with the jury. Uh, 
Right, but I mean the family and family and Ruby himself did did approve him. You know, I think yeah. You know, the, uh, you know the, I mean the, the part of the side. You know, as much as say the uh, Camelot, the Kennedy Camelot story is is a family saga. So is the Ruby story. Yeah, so I, I, I um, you know the one of the things that uh, to me is the most uh, relatable in a way is you know Ruby was one of seven, one of eight brothers and sisters. There've been nine. One died in a traumatic scalding accident as an infant. That uh, you know, if you know if you know anything about his parents, that you know, one would hope it was an accident, but you can almost see it as, as some, if not benign neglect, then, uh, then outright violence. But Ruby was one of eight siblings. He didn't have any children, but he had uh, seven sisters and brothers. They, you know, they had a, a number of children. I spoke to I spoke to one of Ruby's nieces and nephews, who up to now had not really been that interested uh, and been resistant to speaking. Um, so imagine you're your craziest relative, assuming, you know, you yourself are not your own craziest relative, but imagine your craziest relative and you're watching television and suddenly your crazy uh, brother or cousin, Jack, steps up and kills Oswald. Well, you go, oh my God, what have you done now, Jack? And how, yeah, and how, are, yeah. you, and how are we going to keep you out of the electric chair when you just killed a guy on live television? But we got to try. So as much as we bicker among ourselves and have, you know, uh, family squabbles, we have to band together and find the best lawyers. So that, you know, it's almost in a way it's almost touching that the family, like I said, they went through lawyer after lawyer, and uh, I guess the one that they ultimately agreed on, I think, I think in part because of his fame was Be- and and his, and his record of achievement was Belli. People say he hadn't tried a murder before. I think he had a, he had defended at least one murder case mm. successfully in the past. You mentioned talking to um, a member of Ruby's family. Who else did you talk to? I know you talked to the rabbi. Well, the rabbi was, um, you know, that was that that was a large part of my research and the resources. Um, you know, I tend to concentrate because of my own interest and background in um, in um, strange and interesting and you know uh, Jewish Americans like of of that of that um, children of of the immigrant generation that we, that we talked about. Uh, so I, I, as I was researching, I found out that there was this Rabbi Hillel Silverman, who um, some of you may know better, you may know, you may know his son better, uh, Jonathan Silverman, the star of A Weekend at Bernie's. And, and I just, uh, you know, I said, well, this guy um, has got it, you know, was so involved with Ruby. At, and so I uh, was able to get in touch with him. He he died about six months ago at age ninety nine, still with all his marbles intact. Mm. And and uh, so I found him and, and interviewed him, and um, you know he was very uh, you know he was very involved. And then he and uh, after the interview or maybe during at some point he said to me, "Would you like to see my notes that I took when I was visiting Jack in prison three times a week for four months?" And I said, "And you said no." Yeah, I said no. Why would I want to? <laughs> Yeah. I said, can you just summarize it for me in 25 words? No, I said, yes. <laughs> so, uh, and I said to him, uh, yeah, but just send me uh, photocopies. I, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't want to have the responsibility of having your original documents, but, um, 
nonetheless, and he said, he said, I'm no longer writing my own book. Everybody in the courtroom was taking notes for a book, including the judge. I mean, it was, it was, it was the biggest circus trial until the Chicago seven trial or Chicago eight, depending on how you count. Um, so two days later, I get a FedEx package with, with his original notes, complete with the rusty paper clips from 1963. Mm. And uh, I photocopied, I scanned them and sent them back because A, I wanted to not lose track of them, but B, you get a funny feeling when you get something like that in the mail and you think, is it a good idea for me to have an original documents relating to the Kennedy assassination in my house? You know? Yeah. So, uh, but th yeah, that, those notes, um, you know, he took uh, very detailed notes of his visits and of Jack's moods and of what was going on. And then the more I researched and, and studied what was going on, um, it was very, to me, it was interesting, hopefully to the readers, to intercut his notes with what was going on in the courtroom and in Ruby's mind and with Ruby's family and, and, uh, and with the lawyers and newspapers, you know, because there was, there was, you know, so many things going on simultaneously um and uh so yeah I, I i yeah those notes were um invaluable yeah yeah i think they're they're a really important part of the book so uh what's next lee harvey oswald you know it's possible and of course i mean one thing that was um gratifying and interesting when i i went you know i, I spoke in dallas the other night and of course um the people who came out, uh, many of them were people who had lived in, who were native to Dallas and had lived during that period. So I heard a lot of, you know, new anecdotes that, you know, I kind of some of uh, some of which I wish I had uh, gotten uh, for the book. You know, so there may be there may be, but there are aspects of Oswald. Oswald to me is a whole, you know, if Ruby is a can of worms, Oswald is a, a whole uh, supermarket of worms. You know, there's so yeah. many inconsistencies in in what we think we know and don't know, you know, to me, and again, I don't want, I don't want to be stoking, you know, conspiracies, need, theories need, needlessly, but to me, it blows my mind that there was, in 1963, my family had a tape recorder, and we were just middle class, we weren't wealthy, a lot of people I knew had tape recorders, you know, yeah. you know who didn't have a tape recorder? The Dallas Police Department. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and also, you know, somehow in that 48 hours, nobody thought to tape record, nobody uh, thought to go down, to, to walk two blocks to a, to, a, uh, to a department store in downtown Dallas and buy a tape record, you know. So um, there are things about Oswald, including um, some, some parts of his life that I might want to get into, but there, there's, there's a few other things I'm toying with that I'm you know, actually doing some research this week and some phone calls. So I don't want to uh, tip too much about it. But as you would imagine, if you've read any, if you read my Stan Lee book or, or my, any of my other, my other uh, um, nonfiction books or even my comic book work, you, yeah, you, the, the odds are it'll be some kind of psychological deep dive. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds good. I look forward to that. Thank you, Carl. It's really been a pleasure. Same here. Same here. Thank you so much. And today, of course, we're recording on the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy. That's right. A lot of stories this morning. Yeah, yeah. So that's that, right. That is quite uh, 60 years you now. Uh, as time does, it seems a million years ago and yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Like many people, I remember where I was when the assassination happened.
Yeah, me, me too. Although my story is not particularly interesting, which is why I didn't. Yeah, I, I, I didn't especially bring it up. But it's just kind of yeah. Somebody told me, and I went, oh, that's not that's terrible. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I was in high school. Yeah, um, we were in the library actually when it was sort of announced, and I was sitting across from a classmate. She didn't say anything; just tears streaming down her face. Yeah, yeah. Probably the first time anything of a public, you know, nature event in the suburban high school right it really penetrated right well I, you know and i think i was 10 and so it was a I, you know i don't think i had the maturity to quite understand how momentous it was you know yeah um so that so i what i, I what i need to work on actually the next thing i need to work on is some made-up story about what i was doing and how i responded because it's because like i said what the real story is just kind of yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Well, when you when you get that all together, we'll do another podcast. Sounds good. All right, Carl. Thank you so much. <laughs> what a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. Take care.